Hey folks, it's Jason, the producer. The last two weeks, Pastor Jason and Pastor Jess have been extremely busy with it being Easter and everything. So I actually have three different messages from Pastor Jason. One that takes place before Easter, one that takes place during Easter, and then the most recent one takes place a week after Easter. So please enjoy. Welcome to Word from the Mountaintop a weekly inspirational podcast brought to you from the Mountain Luther Parish. Today's Word of the Lord will be shared by Pastor Jason or Pastor Jess Felici. Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 13th chapter. Before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Judas, knowing that the Father had given Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, One who is bathed does not need to wash, except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example, that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, on this night we recall when you gathered with your disciples and gave them a new commandment. We ask you to be with us now as we prepare to walk your Passover from death to life. And as we consider the events and the stories of people you met along the way, we ask you to guide us through these days and to open our hearts and our minds to this gospel message anew, one that we hear and know from our younger days, and yet it continues to have an effect on our faith even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What are we doing here? That's the question of the night. And of course, like many other questions that I ask, there may be multiple answers. What are we doing here? Might sound like a strange question. I mean, the answer is quite obvious. We're at church. We're here for Monday Thursday. You know, it's a Thursday night, right? This is not a normal church day. It's hard to get people out to church on any day but a Sunday, maybe save Christmas Eve. But maybe the better question is not what are we doing here, but what brought you here tonight? What brought you here tonight? 
There's probably lots of answers to that question. Maybe it was on the calendar, so you came, right? Or you heard us make an announcement in church and you wanted to be here. Or you've never been to a Monday Thursday service or haven't been to one in a while, and so you wanted to come and hear this text again as you prepare for Easter. Maybe a better question for this night than those two is the question, why do we do what we do? Why? Again, as you've heard in sermons, that's a question I'm hearing a lot in my household. Why? Why are we doing this, Dad? Why are we doing this? Why? Why, why, why? So, you know, it's kind of got me asking the question, why do we do what we do? Everything really has to have a reason, right? And this service is special. There is a specific why to this service. There's a reason that we gather this night. And that's to remember the Last Supper. To remember Jesus' final night with his disciples. This distinctive time before Good Friday, before the events kind of turn out of control. And Jesus, of course, is abandoned by those very disciples. And yet this story is important to put in context what is about to come on Good Friday and on Easter morning. We take this time tonight to cling to these last words of Jesus. This new commandment that he gives us to love one another as we have been loved. To see Jesus serve the disciples the master serving the servants. And we gather to celebrate communion, to remember this ordinance, sacrament, as we distinguish it in the Lutheran church, that was commanded that night as he prepared for the events that were to come. Now, as we gather to take communion, it's uh, very interesting uh, because communion practices have evolved. You know, back in the day when a Maundy Thursday service and it had communion, um, you know, it might have been one of three, four, two times a year that communion was offered uh, in the congregation. And maybe as you consider communion practices, as you've seen over the span of your life, you might be asked asking, what are we doing here in regards to communion? For many people, in their lifetime, we went from once or twice a year of having to com communion to monthly or semi-monthly. The frequency has increased, for sure. But things have also changed. Um, the manner by which we have distributed it, Somebody told me, you know, I watch you give out communion, and it's kind of like it's a conveyor belt. Everybody just comes up, goes in a circle, they take the stuff, they put it in their mouth, and everybody keeps moving. We, we try to get it in as quick as we possibly can, right? And maybe you ask, what have we lost in this sense of, of communion, of offering communion more often, of seemingly hurrying to get it done? But also, the question is, what have we gained? What have we gained as we celebrate this meal? As we come again tonight, all of you, regular, weekly church attenders who regularly receive communion, what is different tonight? What are we gaining by gathering around the meal tonight? Well, when we look at our practices and we ask ourselves why, the first place we should always go when we ask that question is Scripture, right? And today's text from 1 Corinthians is the shortest reading of the day, uh, but it's very instructive to what we do together. St. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he writes to a divided church, economically, socially, politically, and of course, as you might expect, since this is a divided church, they fought about, they fought about just everything. Didn't matter. They fought about it. And there were two very big groups within this church. There were the elites, 
of the community who didn't work a nine-to-five job and who in this particular instance, right before this particular text, we're told, they would gather to celebrate communion before the field workers and the day laborers arrived for church. Because the church in this time, in this very early period, hadn't um, codified, for lack of a better term, how they would work. You know, nowadays, you kind of know the order of the service. There's a gathering, and then we have the word from the Bible and preaching, and then we have the meal if we have communion, and then we have the sending, the closing hymn, right? So we have an order, a liturgy. But in the early church, they didn't have that. They were still kind of figuring out what things were going to look like. And so there was no specific time that they would gather and have communion, There was no specific time when there would be readings or preaching. They were still kind of coming up with how this was going to work. And so the bread and wine would be eaten and drank along with all the other foods that were put out by the elites and they were gone by the time everybody else arrived. And so you might imagine that the folks who were out in the fields all day and the folks who were working all day were a little mad that... Every, you know, everything was basically over and done with by the time that they arrived. And so St. Paul somehow, and we don't know how, he receives word about this practice. He receives word that the Corinthian church isn't kind of living out its call the way they should. And so he corrects it with today's reading. And he reminds us that the purpose of this meal is to share Jesus as a memory, remembering back, to what he taught us at the Last Supper and remembering the Last Supper itself, but also as a reality that this is a command that Jesus gave to us and so we are to partake in it as well. And what St. Paul says is that everyone gets the same thing, bread and wine. Everybody is invited to the meal, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter which class you are a part of, that this practice is different. Everyone is invited to the meal. Of course, we continue this practice as we gather for Holy Communion. And as you think about our own practices, of course, everything that we do in the church, at least in our churches, is influenced by this little guy here. Luther's small catechism. And when you read the small catechism, Luther points us directly to what is at the heart of this meal, what the true meaning of communion is. He says this, what is the sacrament of the altar? And he answers, it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine. Yes, your your pastor is reading from the small catechism. I love it. It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. So Jesus himself is present in this meal, offering us his body and his blood. It is not simply a memory for us, but it is a reality that Jesus somehow in some way is present in the bread and the wine, in with and under as we teach and preach. And so we're here tonight, if for no other reason than that reason, that we gather to receive Jesus. And as we journey to the cross, we are offered Jesus himself to nourish us on the journey. As you get ready to go on a big car trip and you have, a, you have something to eat at home before you leave, It's that kind of nourishment to get ready for where we are headed and where we are going. But the question is, what makes us worthy to participate in this meal? It's the question that the Corinthians were asking at the time, and it's the question that at times each one of us brings. What makes us have any right to come to the altar and receive Jesus' body and blood? Well, Luther says this, fasting and bodily preparation are in fact a fine external discipline, but a person who has faith in these words given for you 
and shed for you for the forgiveness of sin is really worthy and well prepared. However, a person who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared because the words for you require truly believing hearts. So it's not our works. It's not what we bring of ourselves. It's not our external preparations. But it's faith. Faith in the words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And this echoes St. Paul's reminder to the Corinthian church about who receives the meal. Everyone. In the same way. Because... The reality is, if you're showing up for church, for communion, there's something going on in there. The Holy Spirit is moving you in faith in some way to be a part of the community. Now this night, this specific night, is not just any celebration of communion, not just any service, but it calls us back to the Passover which you can't separate what happens to Jesus these next few days from the celebration of the Passover. And that Passover, when Jesus celebrated this meal for the first time with his disciples. And we Christians journey through a Passover as well each time we gather during the great three days. We celebrate and remember Jesus' Passover from death into life. And we are reminded both that God is with us on this journey and that Christ walked this path for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. So it's personal. This journey is deeply personal. But yet it's also communal, as we see in Holy Communion. We come together each time we share this meal. You cannot have communion in the Lutheran Church with one person present. It is against the rules. You must have a community gathered. And we are sure that as we gather, that everyone receives, that everyone who is called to the table through faith, receives. And it's through this meal that God seals his new covenant with us and binds us together as the body of Christ. So let us taste and see through this meal that the Lord is good and that through this meal he desires to give us the forgiveness of sins, life, and ultimately, salvation. Thanks be to God. Amen. According to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed by this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's pray. 
Lord, on this holy day, we give you thanks that you have brought us together and that you have spoken this word of life to us again. Help us as we contemplate the resurrection and as we share this good news with the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back when I was in high school, now you know if a sermon starts like that, you should be worried, right? Back when I was in high school, of course, the most important moment of high school other than graduating is when you get your first car. And my first car was a 1995 black Toyota Camry. And it was my favorite car. I tell people that if I could find it and buy it and use it again, I would. And I'm positive that 24 years later, it's still running and doing well. And I would gladly take it back, 350,000 miles in all. But one of my favorite features of this vehicle was that the back seats would fold down. And you could access the trunk from inside the car. And my friends began to pick up on that, and they decided that we would play some pranks on some of our other friends. So one of my uh, smaller friends would get into the trunk, and we'd go and pick someone up, and they would get in the passenger seat. And I would get them talking, and we would be having a conversation. And after a little while, my friend in the trunk would fold the back seat down and slide into the back seat and would then randomly join into the conversation. Uh, Usually, the person in the passenger seat when this happened would have some type of cathartic experience um, and would only be held in by their seatbelt. And usually, the person back in the back would yell, Surprise! And, you know, preachers always say, Do as I say, not as I do. This is not something you should do. I understand that. My parents are going to be at the next church, and they've never heard this story. So this should be good. But we didn't do it on any highways. These were on the side streets of Wheeling. And I'm a big fan of surprises. I always love, you know, to do that. Uh, And now, of course, you know that for sure. But if I had to use one word to characterize the reaction of Jesus' followers, of the women who came to the tomb that day, it would be surprise. A church in Bangladesh was showing a film about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to an audience filled with people who had never heard the gospel before. And in this auditorium, there were a bunch of little children sitting up front and in the aisles, and the adults were standing in the back watching this movie as it went on. A little skeptical. But as the story of Jesus unfolded, and as the images of the crucifixion were laid out, and Jesus' broken body was put upon the cross, and then laid into the tomb. There were tears and audible gasps among the adults in the back of the theater. And as the affected audience watched, one boy in the front suddenly stood up and looked back and said, Don't be afraid! He gets up again! I've seen this movie before! Now that's the little boy that you don't tell about the surprise party until a half an hour before it starts, right? But can you imagine being exposed to the gospel for the first time and watching the crucifixion scenes being reenacted and then through the power of a motion picture witness his resurrection and his appearance to the disciples? Surprise, right? He who was dead is now alive. This is one story that's not too good to be true. Now, Pastor Phil Calloway tells of driving his five-year-old son past a local cemetery. And of course, five-year-olds sometimes have an interesting perspective on things, as you know. But noticing a large pile of dirt beside a newly excavated grave, the boy pointed and said, Look, Dad, one got out. Now, Calloway laughed at the time. But he writes, Now every time I pass a graveyard, I'm reminded of the one who got out. The one, capital O-N-E. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. The women had gone to the tomb, not to experience the resurrection, remember, but to bring the burial rituals to completion. For those of you that came for our midweek services, you know that these Jewish burial rituals 
are very important. They're very regimented. And each day there were responsibilities to be done. And on the third day, people were to go and anoint the body with spices and perfumes. The women were going to the tomb to do that action and to mourn everything that they had seen the past week. From Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him, crucify him. When they arrived, as amazing and shocking as all of those things had been, at the tomb they stumbled upon the greatest surprise of them all. Jesus was not there. He had been raised. Remembering his words, they go back to the village and they tell the apostles what they had seen and heard. But they were met with skepticism and doubt. They go so far as to assume that it was an idle tale. Even though Jesus had told the disciples many times that he was going to rise from the dead. Like four to five times in the gospel. And he didn't even say spoiler alert. But Peter hears this message and gets up and runs to the tomb. And he saw with his own eyes what had happened. And again, the tomb was empty. And Jesus was indeed alive. Surprise! Now the men in dazzling clothes in this text proclaim this message to us as well. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Even after all these years, hearing this story year after year after year, we as Jesus' disciples still come to the tomb amazed and bewildered, and if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes a little skeptical about this news. And we still look for Jesus in all the wrong places. Because we do what's instinctual, what the world has taught us about power and glory. And in the process, we forget or ignore all the things that Jesus has taught us about what is to come. Just like these women, just like his apostles. We like to think that we will find Jesus among the elites and those with power. But we won't find him there. Because he's busy being with the poor and the forgotten, the tax collectors, the prostitutes and sinners. We like to think that we'll find Jesus in rules about who's in and who's out. But we find Jesus proclaiming grace to convicted criminals, healing lepers and those who are unclean, and forgiving the sins of those whom society has deemed unforgivable. We like to think that we can find Jesus in the highest of human institutions, in political leaders, and in governments. But Jesus tells us that we will find him here, in our humble church, in the word, in the waters of baptism, and in the bread and wine of Holy Communion. Why do you look for the living among the dead? The good news will be revealed to us in the least likely places, from the most unexpected people. The gospel will be proclaimed by people we deem to be below us. Don't think for a second that those apostles didn't think that the women that went to the tomb were of equal stature as they were, right? The grace of God will become clear to us through sinners that we think are worse than we are. The very people that we think God would never use to spread the gospel are the very ones he is called to proclaim it. Easter is miraculous. It's irrational. It makes no sense. Because God brings life out of death. Who does that? And so the life of a Christian then is to expect the unexpected. Now, we can go looking for Jesus in all the places that we expect to find him. In church, in a really great sermon, right? In a mediocre sermon, in the best-dressed and clean-shaven person that we know, in the guy who does everything right, everything he touches turns to gold, 
And the lady that does all the good works in the community, that if there's something going on, she is there. And yes, you will find him there. Jesus is present. I mean, Jesus' spirit was even present in that tomb where his body was not. But the greatest lesson Easter has to teach us is that we are to expect the unexpected. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And so that means Jesus is going to be found today and every day in the places that you least expect to find him. The joy of the resurrection is that Jesus will be found in those who are grieving and those who are suffering the pains of this world. Jesus will be found among the outcasts and the poor. Jesus will be found in graveyards and cemeteries. Jesus will be found in infants and children who sometimes get it better than we do. Jesus will be found in bread and in wine. Jesus will be found in sinners in need of redeeming. Jesus, God himself, will be found in women and men, in you and in me. Yes, you will find Jesus in all the places that you least expected to find him. Surprise! But that is exactly where God needed him to be. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter. Amen. According to St. John, the 20th chapter evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the gospel of our Lord. Pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In middle school, one of my favorite classes was my foreign language class, which was Spanish. Now, I was trying to think back to remember if I had an option. I'm not sure I had an option in middle school, Uh, but we did take Spanish, and I remember this class for two reasons. One is I got to have a Spanish name, and my name was Rafael. I can't, I can't throw my R's, so that's the best I can do. Uh, but the other reason is because at the end of the semester, we got to have a party. Now, it was Spanish class, so it wasn't a party. It was a fiesta, okay? And, of course, the fiesta was a class project. You had to research food from a Spanish-speaking country of your choosing, and then make that food to bring into the class and share on the day of the fiesta. 
So I researched, you know, some class and, and, or some foods and picked the food that I was going to make for class. And I, I believe like it was a burrito or an enchilada or something like that, that you had to put on a tray and bake in the oven. Now, as any stubborn middle schooler would do, uh, he would tell his mom, that being me, that I didn't need her help. I could do this all by myself, that I was old enough to prepare this food for the fiesta. So she was off doing something, and the bell went off for the oven, and I got ready to take the platter out of the oven. And somehow, and I'm still not sure exactly how I did this, I rested my hand on the platter in the oven. And of course, I yelped and made a sound that you know the whole house heard, and my mother comes running in, uh, and I'm looking at my finger where there is this burnt line where I had rested my finger on the platter. Now, it didn't appear to be a bad burn, so we cleaned it out and iced it down and put cream on it and put a Band-Aid on it and nursed it at home. And it did heal. But when the new skin grew over that spot, I had a scar. And it lasted for years. I had this scar, this line right here, on the top of my hand. And even if I, and I was looking at this the past couple of days as I was getting ready for the sermon, if I hold my finger just right in the light, I can see the line where I burnt my finger on that platter of burritos some 20 years ago. And that scar, for many years, was a reminder, as I was learning more and more about cooking, to remember how hot something gets when you're cooking it. That was, for sure, a reminder, and stayed with me for a long time. As I was thinking about scars, one of the most sacred privileges of our job as pastors is getting called in to be with people in the moments that leave behind scars. And some of them are the kind of scars that leave a mark on our bodies, uh, for instance, surgeries or accidents um, or, and the like. But others are the kind that leave our souls scarred, like sudden deaths and unexpected losses, cancer diagnoses, mental health hurdles. And it's interesting because society tells us and spends a lot of time convincing us that we should hide our scars. I mean, there are over-the-counter products that we can get to cover up all the marks on our bodies that we don't like. We're given a timeline for when we should heal from our traumas. And we're mostly expected to stop mentioning it, whatever that it is that caused a scar, after a certain amount of time, because if you just keep talking about it, it starts to make people uncomfortable. We actually see people make up all kinds of stories to explain how they got their scars, whether they're true or not. Now, this is an actual factoid. Harrison Ford, we all know who Harrison Ford is, right? He's famous for telling a story that he saved someone from a mugger with a knife, and that's how he got his scar. But here's the real reason. The real reason is that he fainted when his girlfriend tried to pierce his ear and he hit his chin on the sink. That's how Harrison Ford got his scar. Now you know. Right? It's silly. But we try, try to hide the real reason for our scars. Today, we hear the tale of Thomas. Doubting Thomas, as we sometimes call him. And he misses Jesus' surprise appearance in the upper room. And he tells the other disciples, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And for a week, Thomas walked around just as the other disciples had after the women told them about the resurrection, in disbelief and in willful ignorance. But then, suddenly, he was locked in the upper room and Jesus appears again through the locked doors and greets them. And Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he looked directly at Thomas and he said, put your finger here and see my hands 
Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Now this scene where Jesus enters the upper room with the frightened disciples is the climax of the entire Gospel of John. It may even be a more pivotal point than when Mary Magdalene sees Jesus in the garden. It's one of only three or four texts that we use every single year in worship. It's that important. And what's interesting about this text is oftentimes what the text doesn't tell us. Because yes, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus came the first time. But Thomas was the only one out of the 11 who wasn't cowering in fear behind those locked doors, right? Thomas was out there in the world after the resurrection, braving whatever the authorities were going to do to the disciples. And while Thomas was away, Jesus entered that locked room. And what do we do? We accuse Thomas of being the doubting one, of being the odd man out. But if we really think about the sequence of events in the text, can't we say the same thing about all the other disciples? Right? These men who fled from the cross for fear of their own lives. The men who were hiding in the upper room and doubted the power of God to work through Christ, even in his death. I mean, these disciples denied all that Jesus had taught them and strived to instill in them about sharing the good news and continuing the mission in the world after he was gone. And then, through shut doors, in Jesus walks. And until he shows them the marks in his hands and the pierce in his side, they don't know what to make of it. And even though the scriptures don't really give us the details of how Jesus looked when he appeared, I don't believe that Jesus looked as though he had just came out of the salon. Like, post-resurrection, Jesus does not look like Kate Middleton when she walks out of the hospital after having those royal babies, right? Where you look at her and say, were you just at a photo shoot or did you just have a baby? That's not how Jesus looked. His hair wasn't brushed straight. His teeth were not recently whitened. And the only Savior that Thomas will accept is a wounded one, right? He wants to see the marks in Jesus because an unscarred Jesus would never be able to relate to what those men and women experienced after Jesus' passion and death. And this is something really critical for our faith and for the faith of people around us. And it happens right here in this passage. You see, it's so unfortunate. It comes the week after Easter, which we always jokingly call Low Sunday, right? So for those of you that are here, you can pat yourselves on the back that you're here in church on this Sunday after Easter, this second Sunday of Easter, because the Easter promise begins to be fulfilled in this text. Because Jesus comes back and seeks out the ones who doubt. The one who has to see to believe. And Jesus lets Thomas see him. And he invites Thomas to touch his wounds. Now think back earlier in the Gospel of John. We just had this text a couple of weeks ago in Lent. When Jesus declares that he will go back to Bethany where Lazarus is known to be sick. And later in the text, he cries, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out of the grave, right? But in this text is also one of Thomas's only other speaking parts in the gospel, right? Thomas doesn't play that large of a role, but he has another place where he speaks. And in this particular text, Thomas looks at the disciples and he says to them, let us go too, that we might die with him. Now, that's not something you say about someone that you have no faith in, right? Let us go, too, that we might die with Jesus, because everybody knew that if Jesus went back to Jerusalem, they were going to kill him. 
And Thomas was willing to walk toward Jerusalem with Jesus, knowing that he also would face the possibility of death. So Thomas has faith, but he doubts the resurrection. He doubts that Jesus came back from the dead. This is such an important detail because we often gloss over this, right? And say that it's all or nothing. And yet in this text, Jesus builds relationship with this man in the midst of his doubt and uses his scar story to make the connection so that he might believe. And in a world where we do everything we can to disguise our scars, to cover them up in makeup or with clothes, we distract people from noticing them or tell a joke, or we share out an entirely made-up story instead of using our scars to connect with others. It's so important to pay attention to this. Because we also, in the 21st century, live in a world full of people who doubt the resurrection who might have some type of faith going on, some type of seeking, but doubt this resurrection. So it's such a gift to us to gather on this second Sunday of Easter because we are the ones who need this reminder that Easter is not some religious obligation. It's not just some Sunday that we, ha- we get through in order to get to the food and the eggs and the candy and the dessert and While that's all well and good, it's also the day, not just also, it is the day that Jesus emerged from the tomb, victorious, but with scars and all, and went about showing the world what the good news of a living God looks like. Now the truth is, so we think about the whole of Holy Week and Easter, The reality is, whether we want to admit it or not, we try to shield our eyes from the gore of the cross. We love to go straight to Easter. And I know this because Good Friday is consistently one of the lowest attended services we do all year. But even if we squint our eyes closed and try not to look at the nails that were driven through his flesh, even if we stay home so we don't have to reckon with with the pierced hole in Jesus' side. The reality is we cannot walk past that because Jesus appears on Easter with those scars. And it's those very scars from Good Friday that allow Thomas to believe. It's not the witness of the women that come from the tomb. It's not the excitement of his friends, the other disciples that have seen the risen Lord. It's not Thomas sitting there and thinking back to what Jesus taught him about what was going to happen. It was seeing and touching the scars that led to his confession of faith. My Lord and my God. Right? If you talk to me, the ladies at the Bible study know I don't call him Doubting Thomas. He's not Doubting Thomas. He's confessing Thomas. Because up until this point in John, this is the strongest confession of faith. Because he sees Jesus not only as his Lord, but as God himself. And Jesus responds to Thomas in this confession. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, for a long time, I've read those verses as though the rest of us are blessed, right? It's a special blessing upon us who have not seen and yet believe. And he's saying, now, Thomas, not everybody's going to get to have this real great experience. But as I've taken the inventory of my own scars, and as I think about the scars that members of our parish and community carry with them, I realize something. St. Paul tells us in the epistles that we are the body of Christ, right? We use that term, we throw it around a lot. You know, you are the body of Christ. That was last week's uh, dismissal, right? You are the body of Christ raised up for the world. Get out of here. Go eat your Easter dinner. My paraphrase, right? 
But we are not just figuratively the body of Christ. We are literally Jesus' hands and feet for the world to see. Right? We are Jesus' representation, representation here on earth. So that means that we are called to bear the scars of the resurrection to the world. And our scars are signs that we have survived, that our faith is intact, that we know new life. And when we think about it, there are so many scars that we work diligently to hide. Depression, anxiety, addiction, infertility, dementia, pain, grief, the list goes on. But as we allow others to see these scars and the evidence that we have lived, we just might be helping someone who doubts to begin to believe in the resurrection. Now, perhaps you are blessed. Perhaps you hear that blessing from Jesus and you realize that belief has come easy for you, even without the gift of seeing. That you've had your faith since you were a young child. You've never doubted, you've never wavered, you've never questioned. And no doubt about it, no pun intended, you are blessed. But perhaps you read that and you sit there and wonder about that time you doubted. Or you worry about when you're in the agony of fear. Or you dread the pain of new trauma that might be coming. Wherever you are in this walk, watch for the miracle of resurrection all around us. And look and see those scars that prove that new life finds even those whose lives have borne suffering or pain or death. Let people see those scars. Thanks be to God. Amen.